You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Hey, great to see everyone here uh, today. We have an amazing guest with us um, that I just wanted to take a minute to introduce. Randall is um, not just a friend of Queen City, but a friend of Kara and I as well. And um, we have the honor of Penny being with him this morning. Uh, two, which I'm sure he will introduce. Um, but Randall has been a friend of ours for, gosh, probably 12 years, maybe. Um, something like that. I was still just barely out of diapers when we met. Um, but Randall's someone that we've had at our old church for, for years, and one of the consistent voices we wanted to bring in every year. The thing I love about Randall is he will provoke thought, not just give answers, but he'll leave you thinking. Um, I think you say this often, if not, I'm making it up, but um, he'll often leave you with more questions than answers, um, which I, I love uh, that kind of teaching and thought-provoking challenge. I think the body should be challenged, um, but I, I love just the beauty that's on this guy. I also want to say this. I know he's a dear friend um, just to this house and has been here for a long time as well, um, but Randall's one of the guys who um, I would just consider a mentor, a friend, and one of those voices that over the years I've been personally been able to lean on, um, and I'm just so grateful for that. I, I used to tell our church all the time we wouldn't be where we are and we wouldn't be what we are without voices like this speaking behind the scenes and taking phone calls and um, just being wisdom to guys like me. And I know Robin would, would share the same thoughts up here this morning. So if you would, give a round of applause for Randall Worley. Hi. It's always uh, something I look forward to coming to Queen City. And um, it's uh, not that often that my wife has the privilege of traveling with me. And she leaned over to me when Dan acknowledged that she was here. And she said, it is not necessary for for you to acknowledge me. Um, But I'm so happy that she's here. And uh, it's so good to see some of our friends that we have a shared history with uh, scattered across the audience. It's a wonderful day. It really is. Regardless of what the world systems are saying to us, we can, with great confidence, declare this is the day that the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. It's your choice, isn't it? You can open your Bibles anywhere you want to. It's all good. That's what a friend of mine says, but we would, no, we will take a particular text. If you'll turn with me to Peter's first epistle, his first letter, and I'll join you there in a moment. We're going to be reading from chapter 5. And as you're finding the text... I think you probably would agree with me that pastors sometimes spend weeks in sermon series that uh, are unusually too long and often answering questions that nobody is really asking. And it's uh, possible, I think, that we can drown people in information that lacks real relevance. It doesn't really lead eventually to transformation. Now, I make every effort... Uh, I can to answer the obvious questions that people are asking without acquiescing to the trend, so to speak. Uh, 
uh, I understand the importance of relevance. I don't think that we should sacrifice truth for the sake of relevance at all. That's a non-negotiable as far as I see it. But I was thinking the other day about what I have been doing for all these years and came to the realization that preaching is really a risky occupation. You, not, you might not see it as such, but it really is, uh, in my opinion, a very risky line of work. If you remember what Paul had to say on one occasion, which I identify with, I, the first time I read it, I really resonated with it when he, said, when he referred to preaching as foolishness. And, and sometimes it does seem that way to me, foolishness, that I would be so pretentious to assume that I could speak about God or for God. But God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to reveal the wisdom of the cross. And so, you know, we, we do obviously live, this is an understatement, in an upgrade culture. And, of course, upgrade meaning that we are to raise to a higher standard or grade to replace with one thing another uh, because of its ability to perform. But I think as our culture continues to change, again, we need to ask the question, does the relevance of God's word diminish? And I would challenge that idea. Does the Bible need an upgrade? No. But does our understanding of it need an upgrade? And I think everybody would agree with that, that that is true. Uh, This past week, if you will just allow me in my meandering here before I get to the actual text, I was thinking about how that the culture that we live in, and this is, you know, I have an amazing grasp for the obvious, that the, the culture that we live in now is overly stimulated, correct? I mean, just satiated with information. I heard a word not long ago that I had never seen before, and it's the word infodemic. Has anybody heard that one? Anybody? Infodemic. Uh, we're obviously familiar with pandemic, but infodemic, and it really just has to do with being overwhelmed with more than we can reasonably process. Now, that makes sense to you, doesn't it? Just being totally overwhelmed or the word satiated, saturated with so much information that we cannot process it all. And oddly enough, even though that's the case, uh, that we are this overly entertained society, it seems that people are suffering from boredom. Now, that that probably sounds counterintuitive to you, but I, I, I think it's true. You know, years ago, many years ago, decades ago, boredom was never an issue because people were busy trying to survive and trying to provide. But now it seems that we are susceptible to boredom. How can that how can that be so? And it seems like that the more we're stimulated with information, that our tolerance goes down and we're less tolerant to lower levels of stimulation. Maybe the real issue is that 
Boredom is revealing to us something about ourselves that we have been unaware of. That boredom is confronting not what is before us, but what's within us. I have an affinity for a great English author, G.K. Chesterton, that, that summed it up. He says, there's no such thing on earth as an uninteresting subject. The only thing that exists is an uninterested person. And I think he's right. Now, with all that said, uh, let's get busy with this text this morning, First Peter chapter 5. And before, I think they have it on the screen. Uh, hopefully, it's not one of those horrible pictures of me that I've seen in previous visits here. Uh, before we read... The words of Peter here in chapter 5, I want you to glance over at chapter 4. I didn't alert them to this, but it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, I probably have made reference to this on previous visits, but I think one of the great deficits, at least in what I am hearing across the religious landscape today, is really clear-minded teaching on how to navigate suffering. Either you have this element of Christianity that is always talking about overcoming everything, or those that are always in denial of everything. But where is someone in the middle that is talking about how do we navigate suffering? 17 times Peter would use the word suffering in this particular letter. Now, before we read it, I want you to imagine, engage your imagination as best as you possibly can, here in the 21st century with all your first world problems, as you sit there in, with, in your hand, you have this, this amazing tool of technology. If you allow yourself to be taken out of this context just for a moment and imagine that you're living in the first century, you don't have one of these. It's the first century. You don't have one of these. You are incredibly lucky if you have one of these letters that we're reading. You don't have that. You're extremely limited as it relates to information. That's why I went on and on about this tsunami of information that most of us are drowning in as to what's going on in the rest of the world. You don't know. I mean, we live in real-time access, but these first century believers, they are almost void of any contact with what's going on. And at best, you are a part of a small, covert fraternity that by necessity has to meet in inconspicuous places and times. So Peter is in Rome. And by the way... There's so many different things that qualify him to write these texts in this particular tone. You might remember 
Uh, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that he narrowly escaped death after James was martyred. And it seemed like his life was fraught with peril. Uh, there's, you know, when we glance back over the pages of the Gospels, you see as well that this man was very familiar with danger, with upheaval, with the unexpected, uh, simply because he was a part of the entourage of Jesus. And so he picks up quill and parchment and he begins to write. I was, I was trying to allow my imagination to take me back there late last night and wonder what it would be like in an uninformed world. Believers that are congregating and holding tightly to one another in a world of uncertainty that is beyond anything that we can imagine. We think we live in uncertain times. And I think something else needs to be said here very clearly. We think we fear the unknown when in reality we fear what we are convinced we know about the unknown. And that's the real issue. What it must have been like with these little cloistered groups, pockets of people scattered. In fact, Paul, I mean, Peter would refer to them in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 as being the exiles. And some of you may be wondering, I, I'm not sure that I can identify with what it's like to be an exile. Well, I think it's very possible for us who live in this Western mindset, in this 21st century mindset to be living with as, as if we're exiled, even though we feel that we're far more informed than they were. To feel this constant angst of where is this going? Do I belong here or do I belong somewhere else? Maybe I should have announced if they haven't already put it on the screen. I'm going to be talking to you out of this text about all of our anxieties. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to enumerate how all those things express themselves. But I have every intention in the time that I have remaining to confront some things about anxiety, the palpitations of your own heart, and the seizure of your own mind and psyche that you probably have not considered as being a source because anxiety is nothing more than a symptom. And maybe the way that we have been approaching it has been all wrong. But as I was saying, I can imagine these very cloistered, isolated groups on any given day remembering they don't have this. Don't have access to one another in the way that we do. And maybe they are gathered in this inconspicuous, secretive, covert place, and they are receiving the Lord's table, as we're about to do at the conclusion of the message this morning. They're sitting there breaking bread. They're doing their best to remember to recite what we can just reference in the Gospels. Now, how was it that we were supposed to do this? How did Peter, what was, what was the prescription that he gave us for receiving the Lord's Savior? Let's see. Somebody speaks up and says, oh, he said that the Lord said, as often as you do this, 
do this, and somebody completes the sentence. That's right, do this in remembrance of me. And, and, and didn't he tell us also when he offered Peter the bread and the 11 other disciples, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Here's the cup of new covenant. So it's all beginning to come together. And these are the exiles that Peter is writing to. He's writing to the, these believers that are living, and here's where I want you to do your best to connect the dots. Because whenever I read any of these ancient texts, I try to discover myself. I recognize that the plain and obvious reason reading of any particular text is usually the wrong one. And I want to repeat that. The plain and obvious reading of any particular text is usually the wrong one because we bring all of our bias to the text. And we're looking for confirmation. We're looking for something. We're looking for clarity without trying to find ourselves there. Not, I mean, forgetting that we don't read it as much as it reads us. Am I talking to the right people this morning? So you can imagine the environment that they are in. And I want again want you to connect the dots this, across this great gulf of almost 2,000 years between where we are here in Western culture and where they were in a Roman culture. They're under Roman occupation. If you are going to survive and thrive in that economic system, whenever you go to the marketplace to do business, to be engaged in the economy of the first century, one of the requirements is that before you could gain access into the marketplace was that you had to offer incense on an altar that was kindled constantly. And this incense required you in the offering of it to declare that Caesar is Lord. Interesting. It causes me to even think about what is on the currency that's in my pocket. And that's what they have to do. If it was discovered, if somebody noticed that they were not paying homage to the government of the time, the military complex of the time, the dominant world power of the time, then that is what is going to put them potentially in harm's way. That's the reason why Paul, you know, Peter is saying in verse 12 of chapter 4, don't be surprised when fiery trial comes upon you to test you because this was a very clear and present danger for them. And they were experiencing intense anxiety. Again, you know, we, generational pride causes all of us to think that this is the most difficult generation in all of history. And I think probably what we ought to do is sit down with some of these who, whose roof is covered with snow. How'd you like that? I said that very poetically. Or as the Bible would call it, these hoary heads, these white and gray heads. And tell me what it was like at one time so I can get some real perspective on where I'm at now. Is everybody still with me so far? In an environment like that, 
suddenly there's, as they're breaking bread, there is a messenger, a courier that comes. He's got a leather satchel over his shoulder, swinging about his waist. He announces them, I have a letter from the apostle. They open it up, and this is what they read, what we're about to read right now. In verse chapter 5 and verse 6, humble yourselves. And I have every intention to show you the connection between humility and anxiety. Maybe you've never thought about that. That they're, they are set in juxtaposition to one another. And the reason why that we become obsessed with anxiety is because of our lack of humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time that he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties. We're going to talk about what that looks like. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, I was shocked recently to read... And I, I want you to hear this. I, I was shocked recently to read that the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as an average psychiatric patient did in the 1950s. That is stunning. A high school kid today has the same level of anxiety that a psychiatric patient that's been committed had in the 50s? See, our brains, and those of you that have heard me previously this, you know that I cannot resist talking to you just from a theological perspective. I got to talk to you from a psychological one too. Are you okay with that? Ready or not, here I come. I'm going to do it with, with or without your permission. Because I think this is incredibly important now more than ever before. Because some of the, some of the issues, some of the things that we grapple with cannot be adequately, and some of you are going to think this is heresy, cannot be adequately dealt with just by throwing Bible verses at people. They have to have someone to engage them to the degree that they understand, why am I thinking this way? And why am I allowing it to affect me this way? Our brains are hardwired to function, and this may be an oversimplification, on a two-channel system. And that two-channel system is either surviving or thriving. Now think about that for a moment. Instinctively, and maybe you've heard it framed like this, instinctively our response to crisis is either fight or flight. Now the thing that is problematic about that is that the survival channel is an older and louder channel. I'm sure you can relate to that. Hey, listen, what... Wouldn't it be great if there was an on and off switch for your thoughts? Which, by the way, if you find that, please let me know about it. I want to know where that on and off switch 
is. And there are people, and don't look to the right or the left or look about. There are people among us here this morning that deal with this affliction, this disease of overthinking. Please don't look around. What is overthinking? It's the art of creating problems that weren't even there. And that overthinking really can ruin beautiful things before they even have a chance to start. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me when I talk about overthinking. Maybe right there is where I should give the invitation to all the overthinkers. You say, That's, uh, you probably know someone, right? I, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not talking about thinking through things. Because thinking through things is not the same thing as overthinking. Thinking through things is a function of the God-given logic that you've been given. But our brains process tens of thousands of thoughts every day. And those thoughts you have to come to terms with are not facts. And they do not result anxiety in anxiety until you begin to attach meaning to them. You and you alone are the architect of your reality and of your world. It is not what is coming to you, but the way you are interpreting it and attaching meaning to it. This is where anxiety finds its root system. Uh, You know, just early this morning... I read that there are new synapses. Now, this is, neurology is high above, far above my pay grade. But there are new synapses or connections that are created in your brain every time that you entertain an anxious thought and allow it to become your reality. It remaps, rewires the way that you're thinking. And as a result, will influence the way that you navigate everything in the future. See, the difference between thinking something through and overthinking is overthinking is an issue of trusting more in your ability to control that situation than God's ability to walk you through it. That's the real difference. And some of you, again, may be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with you know this particular text because he is you know he will consistently talk to them about guarding their minds he will talk to them about how that the world system the regime around them that was forever threatening their survival isn't isn't it interesting though that when you look back at this stage in history that the church, the body of Christ, thrived more than it does today. Yet, we have so much more information. It's our infodemic that has become our problem. And, and, and see, their form of evangelism was... I've discovered through church history is not the same form of evangelism that we have subscribed to today. Their form of evangelism 
was not to come up with a better argument for those that oppose their belief system, but their form of evangelism was to show those around them, the quote-unquote pagans, that the way we are living and navigating through the uncertainty of the first century world is better than the way that you are. That's the greatest form of evangelism is the, is the ability. See, I have problems and this, this might get me in trouble, but it's not my first rodeo. So I have problems with a lot of the triumphalism that I'm constantly hearing in the so-called church. And I know that they are well intended. Listen, I'm all for us embracing the idea that we can do all things through Christ. And greater is he that is in us. I mean, all these, all these texts that have become basically taglines. I'm all for that. But I wonder sometimes that if it is not unnecessarily offending to the culture around us and alienates us from them. Maybe... The reason why the church grew so prolifically in the, you know, which by the way, in the first 300 years, do you realize that over 60% of the Roman Empire converted to Christianity? And it wasn't because of aggressive forms of evangelism, but it was because the way that they lived was so attractive in a world of uncertainty until the pagans began to approach them and said, please tell us the secret of your peace. Radical peace. Listen, and those words don't seem, they, they seem to be at odds with one another. Radical peace, I believe, now as it was then, is probably the purest form of attracting people into a kingdom that cannot be shaken while all the kingdoms of the world are being shaken and imploding and coming apart. No, not telling them about how lost they are. Not trying to convince them how lost they are but reminding them of how loved they are and how will they know how loved they are is when they feel it emanating from you. When they see that you are not losing your lunch and losing your mind in the midst of all this chaos and the cacophony of the news. I was going to apologize for my passion, but I'm not. I think this, this is the most attractive thing that they could experience. Hey, the other day, and see if this doesn't make sense to you. The other day, I read that the human head weighs somewhere between 5 and 11 pounds. Anybody relate to that? It weighs between 5 and 11 pounds. And that a recent study suggests that looking down at our devices is the equivalent of placing 60-pound 60, 60 weight on your neck. So looking down, this negative, this gravity of negativity it's there, isn't it? Looking down when 
the entire world is going, quote unquote, to hell in a handbasket. And, and I, I, I don't buy that because I've read the gospel. And I'm not deferring to sometime in the sweet by and by. Because eternal life was never intended to be something that we experience after this life. But eternal life is what we're supposed to experience within this life. The Bible has a lot to say about keeping your head up. Did you know that? It really does. My head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. Psalm 27, 6. You are, Lord, are the shield and my glory, the one who lifts my head. When calamity was on the horizon, Jesus told his disciples, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. Now, see, there's something that's very telling. We have applied that to our future, and Jesus said that not to us, but he said it to people 2,000 years ago. Most Christians have bought into the idea that the only relief from our anxiety is an eventual evacuation. Again, I think one of the most radical things we can do as Christians is to be at peace when those around us are suffocating on anxiety. Um, you do realize that anxiety really doesn't have to have an object. It, it really doesn't have to have an object. We can, we can feel anxious and not really know why. I mean, how many mornings, you know, or how many nights have you gone to bed and everything is copacetic, everything you know, it's calm, relatively right in your world and you wake up the next day and it's like as soon as your eyes open, you suddenly have a predisposition and you don't have a clue as to where it originated or where it came from. Here, here's where I wanted to challenge you if I've not been successful so far. <laughs> Is to understand that the word anxiety that he uses here in First Peter chapter 5 is in a broader family of words. It's in the same family of words as anger. That's why he told him you need to humble yourself. And there is a collective consciousness that moves and motivates this particular culture that causes people to live in a big anger that manifests itself in an anger at a micro level. I mean, have you ever seen such a time where there's such hostility, where there's such anger and angst? What in the heck is road rage? When I was a teenager, that didn't exist. What are you angry about? I mean, this is one of the first questions that you find in the Genesis narrative. When there's fratricide, 
Not just a homicide, there's fratricide. There's a brother that kills a brother. And God asks the question, what are you angry about? And that's still the question that he is asking us. What are we angry about? And usually the reason why that we are angry and which results in anxiety is because of a deeper root. It's something deeper in our psyche which has to do with fear. Anger is not a primary emotion. If you're angry about something right now, I tell you, if I had an hour to spend with you, I think that we could uncover it. It's because of something you, you fear. And you know why you fear it? Would anybody like to know why you fear it? You fear it because you assume that you cannot control it. And that's usually the real issue is the illusion of control. And worry pretends, doesn't it, to give us the ability to to control outcomes. Question for you. If God doesn't attempt to control outcomes, why do you? Wait wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, You know, God exercises unilateral control. No, he doesn't. Just because God is omnipotent or has all powerful does not necessarily mean that he chooses to exercise that power in a way that you think he should. So Peter is addressing this clear and present danger of what could possibly happen to these believers if they don't cooperate with the oppressive system that they're living in. Did you hear what I just said? That's the threat. That is what is asphyxiating us because the word anxiety is akin to anger. It's also akin to asphyxiation. It's also in the same family of words as angina. Angina, the constricting of blood vessels. Remember Jesus said men's hearts would fail them for fear? How many times... Have you here in this particular audience and others that I've spoken to heard me say again and again and again that what you focus on will always determine what you miss. And what you focus on will result in obsession. Now I want you to hear this in as much as you possibly can in contemporary terms as I bring this to a close or some reasonable semblance of a closing. (laughs) The temptation was to place their faith in the principalities and powers that controlled everything about their way of life. That's first century. It's the same temptation today. The temptation gospel of the empire. Yeah, they had a gospel too, was to cast all of your anxiety on the government and they will take care of you. The economy, the government, the military, all those things is what they were dealing with even though it was 2,000 years ago. So probably one of the most radical thoughts that I've introduced to you so far is beginning to realize that anger is really the source of it. An anger, a, a big anger, and an anger about, I don't have any control over this. I've lost 
control over this. And you think about all of the injustice. Come on now. How many of you right now constantly have simmering in the back of your mind all of the injustices that are going on? All of the inequity. The way that your money is being spent. It's not their money. It's your money. And you look at the political shell game. Do you think this needs to be heard now? I do. It's the purpose for this heightened anxiety. The poet that wrote, Arden that wrote, uh, Alton that wrote back after the First World War, he talked about this is the age of anxiety because they had never seen anything that like that. And I, I'm not a prophet of doom because I have an imagination and I don't have, listen, a prophetic person is not someone that is able just to look at what is, but to see what is not obvious. To engage people imaginatively, to see beyond the way things appear to be. Would it be encouraging to you if I told you that anger could be healing? <laughs> that, that's par- that sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? But most of the time, we ignore the messages that our anger is trying to communicate to us. Think of it this way. If you witnessed an injustice happening to a child, if you saw that, or any child for that matter, would you turn your back on it? Absolutely not. I mean, we tend to stand up, don't we, more for children because we see them as being more defenseless and vulnerable. Hey, but here's, here's a wake-up call for you. We're all children. We're all children. And really, what he's confronting there as he's confronting with us is that if we are his children, then we need to have such a transformation in our thinking that we realize that he cares about what you care about more than you care about it. We could close right there. He cares about it more than you care about it. And he's more conscious of it. He's more conscious of you than you are conscious of yourself. Gosh, how many times in the course of any given day have I come to the close of a day and I've sat down and I wonder, where did it go and where did I go and what happened? That's the reason why he would say here that humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due season because he cares for you. And humility is a really interesting word. It's probably been misinterpreted as much as any word in our language. It's not thinking less of yourself as one man said, but thinking of yourself less. There's a difference, isn't there? Uh, Self-absorption, I know, is probably nothing you 
ever deal with. Whenever you are experiencing excessive bouts with anxiety, you're self-absorbed. Some of us, it seems, tend to worry more than others, and we worry why other people are not worrying the way that we're worrying about it. And if you're ever able to get to the point where you put together a stretch where you're not worrying, you begin to worry that you haven't been worrying. So the only way, that's the reason why I see the relationship between humility and anxiety are inextricable and getting at the root of what am I angry about? Am I angry at those who are making decisions that seem to be controlling the trajectory of my future? And when I do that, I prove I'm trusting in that and I'm not casting my cares upon the one who truly cares for me. For those of you that own businesses in here, and I know many of you personally, so I'm not singling anybody out. When you find yourself beginning to have emotional meltdowns when the bottom line is not what it was, or you're looking at the vicissitudes of our economy, I hate to be the one, maybe I don't, to be the one to confront you with the reality of this is a revelation to you about you concerning where your trust is truly put. This word humility uh, is in the same family of words as human, humor, and humus. Humus, you know what that is if you've ever, if you've had, ever had a garden, you know, and you, you have um, this uh, compost pile where you have discarded things that have, listen, you discarded things that have once had vibrance, you've discarded things that have once had vitality, have once produced but you recognize that you're not just discarding it and dismissing it entirely, but recognizing that it is a part of the new season of growth that is to come. I think that's one of the reasons why Paul said, I die daily. I die daily. I, w- I want you to stand uh, because I've, I think I've gone past my allotted time. <clears throat> and you are to blame. <laughs> every one of, every last one of you. <laughs> We're going to receive the Lord's table here in a moment. Uh This, this is something that I want to share with you that I heard this past week. I didn't read it. I didn't hear it um, from other source other than what was resonating deep in the core of my being. 
this week in my time of contemplation. Our spatial, spatial understanding of God causes us to think that he looks down on us from above. Correct? Our spatial understanding does that. There's perception that he is above us and beyond us, somewhere out there, which is a total myth. There is no distance between God and anyone, anyone, even though we think he is watching us from a distance. I don't care what Bette Miller is saying. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. The presence of God is infinite. It's everywhere. Ever since God became one of us, oh, this is so, this is so powerful. Ever since he became one of us, he's been within us looking through us while we aimlessly look for him. (laughs) God seems to be hidden, not merely because of this perceived infinite distance from us, but really because of his nearness. He's closer to us than we are to ourselves. He's closer to us than we are to ourselves. It's kind of like looking for something you already have in your hand. Most of the stuff we're praying for, we already have it. The issue is awareness. It's not about you getting an answer. It's about you getting awareness. So this morning, you can come on up here and join me, gentlemen. Add to it whatever you have to say. I I, I want to say this and then you lead them. Is During the worship, wasn't the worship wonderful this morning? It really was. I think that's the first time I've ever heard David. And Oh, it's so warmed my heart but during the worship I thought about when the Lord did this uh, Luke 22 I believe it is um, he did it in a room where someone was plotting to betray him I mean Judas's feet are still damp from when Jesus washed them And Jesus reaches across the table and offers it to him first as if he's the guest of honor. And so what I want to say to you as Robin leads us is that I just really feel like, and I can speak to this, trust me. He was not just broken because of us. That's what religion tells you. He was broken for us and with us. He didn't just suffer 2,000 years ago. God still suffers with us. When your children suffer, are you immune to it? No. Because they're your heart walking around outside your body. When they suffer, you suffer. So I believe that there's a grace here this morning for those of you that has been recently and some of you 
it's still an open septic wound that have been betrayed. I believe there's a grace here this morning for him to bring you into such a common union, a communion with him, that the healing of that betrayal can take place today. Anybody need that? Yeah. I just thank you for the healing of betrayal and rejection because Peter is about to reject him. Judas is about to betray him. They're going to be... They're, they're getting ready to run from him instead of run to him. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead, brother. Thank you, Randall. Why don't why don't you sit down just a second? We're we'll wind this up. We we love you, Randall. Well, I love you too. There ain't nothing you can do about it. You can't get rid of me. Yeah. I'm not gonna try to do anything about it. <laughs> we, we got about 40 years together, right? Yeah, yeah. 40 years. 40 years. I, I would uh, wish that all of you have relationships that have been this long and this rich. Love this man. Yeah, thank you so much. I was reading Ann Voskamp's book, uh, 1,000 Gifts. How many of you are aware of that book? And she talks about uh, communion. Um, actually, the word for communion is Eucharist. Say it with me, please. Eucharist. Eucharist. And the word Eucharist is actually formed with three different words or ideas in it. The first word um, is gift or grace. The second word is thanksgiving, and the third word is joy. All of those are built into that word communion or Eucharist. And so if you like formulas, I do like formulas if they work. Well, the idea is when you acknowledge the gift or gifts of God, and you don't say thank you, but you are thankful joy comes and that's what the entire gospel is built around is what we're about to do is this this communion and, and it's it's so much about being thankful and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you I think there are only two references in the New Testament to the word will of God one of them is to keep yourself pure from sexual immorality. And the um, other one is to be thankful. For this is the will of God. And um, it says in Corinthians here, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night... Let me read this. On the same night in which he was betrayed, when he had given thanks, say given thanks. Given thanks, he broke it and said, and we get ready now, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So go ahead. 
And that word remembrance means fond remembrance. Remember me fondly. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So let's take the cup. I think about what Randall said about anxiety. You know, when I had that aneurysm last summer, I wasn't worried a bit. And the reason was I had no idea that I was almost dying. (laughs) It never occurred to me to be anxious. Now, it did to the people around me who didn't want me to go. One of the keys, though, to... um, successful Christian living is thanksgiving. It really is. I mean, you can't, you can't get away from that. And not being thankful is another um, evidence that you misunderstand the good reality of what it is to be in Christ and the gospel. You really don't get it yet. Because being thankful isn't how many times you say thank you. It's how much you realize what you have to be thankful for. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.